I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That is Psalm 121, which along with Psalms 122 and 123 are the Psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, October the 5th, 2021. Those songs, by the Psalms, by the way, make up what's known as the Hallel, and there were uh, 13 steps up into the temple, and each of these Psalms was read as the priests made their ascension into the temple. So they're called also Psalms of the Ascents. And so these are the, the, the worshipful psalms, giving praise to the Lord as the, 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 the royal band would have played and the, the, shep, uh, the singers would have sung, the Levites would have been doing their duties, and the priests would have ascended up to the temple. And so it would have been a great time of excitement and joyous worship and anticipation of the Lord showing up in the temple at that time, just so you'll know. That's what those psalms represent, Psalms 121 through 133. So now, today, you're listening, by the way, to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, your host. So today, what we're continuing our look at the kings of Judah at this point, which is based in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. Uh, one of the interesting things about the the listing in kings, particularly of the kings of Judah, as opposed to the kings of Israel. Uh, that kingdom now has been gone quite a while from the face of the earth. The Assyrian Empire took them over. The, um, the, north, the southern kingdom had not yet been taken into Babylon, into captivity. So um, one of the interesting things is, and I've forgotten to point this out the last couple of days, and that is, is that, that in, when there's a listing of the kings of the southern kingdom, we get always the names of the mothers as well. They're, they're important in, in teaching and training the children as they grow. And so they're, they're given special honor in that southern kingdom. And that now is the way that, that people trace and prove their Jewish roots is through the mother, because the father could be literally anybody, but as long as the mother's Jewish, then the child is considered to be Jewish as well. That's the reason in Luke's gospel, what we get is the, the line of Mary is the way that Luke traces the genealogy. So we've got 2 Kings 22, 1 to 13. We're still in the uh, epistle, first epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church, and we're at uh, chapter 11, verse 2, and then skipping forward to verses 17 to 22, and still in Matthew's gospel, chapter 9, the first eight verses. So let's get into this one today. So we've moved on from the wicked King Manasseh that we looked at yesterday, who, who was one of the worst kings in the history of Israel. In fact, the, the, the only pe- person that the writer could compare him to was the wicked King Ahab, who was up in the northern kingdom and whose wife was Jezebel. So that's the only person the writer could find to compare the wickedness of Manasseh to. So now we get Josiah, who comes to reign, and he was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And we're not really sure where Bozkath is. We just know it's somewhere up near Lachish, which is where Saul and his family were from, the tribe of Benjamin. And so he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, Josiah did, 
and walked in all the way of David, his father, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So we know immediately we're looking at a good guy. Now, is how good a guy is he is the only thing that we have to determine, but he follows this wicked king Manasseh. And so in the 18th year of Josiah, so now he's 26 years old, he's been reigning for 18 years, he's going to reign another 13, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that's been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. This is the temple tax that you pay to come into the temple. So whenever there's a pilgrim feast, they bring the temple tax, and they pay it in order to be able to to make the sacrifice and participate in the worship of the house of the Lord. So, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and the builders and the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked for them from, for the money that's delivered into their hands, for they deal honestly. That's pretty high praise, right, for the, for the king to say, give these carpenters and other workmen there all the money that's there so that they might go and buy everything that's necessary. That's, that's great trust in the people who are working on the house of the Lord. It, it's a remarkable statement. It's a remarkable thing not to require that accounting. There are very few things in life where I would say, give these people a bunch of money and, and never ask for an accounting of it. I trust them enough that they'll do the right thing with God's money. It's an amazing thing. But after the reign of Manasseh, that the house had to be rebuilt because he had just let it go to ruins because he didn't care. You know, and the people stopped caring as well during that period of time because they were they were worshiping all these other gods. And so the house of the Lord had become decrepit during that period of time. And what had once been one of the greatest things in all the world, the temple in Jerusalem at the time that Solomon built it, had now become nothing more than essentially yeah, just another place where we worship. But it's not just worshiping Yahweh there. Remember, Manasseh set up um, altars for other gods there in the courts of the house of the Lord. And so now Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, the one who had gone and asked for the money, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So this is the Torah. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Good. Job well done. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Oh, by the way, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And then Shaphan read it before the king. And so he's reading the law to the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that's been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do all that is written concerning us. How sad a thing it is to, to imagine that the people of Israel had, had fallen so far that the Torah no longer had any meaning for them. They were, they were even almost unaware of its existence. Worship had become nothing other than simply um, another way of doing some sort of magic, and it was superstition anymore. It was no longer true religion. It was no longer certainly covenant relationship with the living God. 
I mean, how awful would it would it be to have grown up in such an environment where all these people were worshiping all these things and they thought that, oh, we're proud of being Israelites. And then suddenly somebody finds the book of the law that had been so forgotten, they dusted it off and said, wait a minute, we're in covenant with the living God. But that covenant is at least in part dependent upon our obedience to his law. And oh my gosh, look at all the idol worship that's going on here. And so Josiah is cut to the quick by this. And and what my prayer is, is that that this happens in the church. Because there are so many churches now that, that care nothing for the word of God. They use it as a hook to hang their hats on, and then they redefine its meaning on a regular basis in order to avoid the plain words of Scripture and the plain meaning of Scripture and to to deny that there is but one God and to deny that there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus, who gave himself on the cross for us and and instead, well, okay, you say this one, you say that one. Well, so Jesus drew the short straw and ended up on a cross. Buddha got to send under the bow tree and contemplate. That kind of how this happens and how it works? No, absolutely not. There's one mediator who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And, and, and some of our churches have forgotten that reality and that truth. And I know that because I've been in those churches. And they would be shocked to discover this same thing. I, I was in a meeting one time that was, I, was, I had been asked to be part of a, quote, a sermon listening group for a deacon that we had. And at one of the meetings of this thing, there was a lady there who had been on the vestry previously, and and she said, you know, what was that first book you read from for that sermon? Oh, it was Leviticus. Okay, so that was the Old Testament lesson for the day. She said, you know, I got a a set of tapes on comparative religions for Christmas, and, and I've been listening to these things, and I wondered why we had no law like the other religions do. And I'm looking at this person, I'm thinking, how in the world were you in leadership in a church and you had no earthly idea there was a law? And then you feel free to completely reject everything that's in that law. And, and that is literally the way many people have been taught, that the Old Testament has no meaning, no value, and no purpose. Well, the Holy Spirit can't lead us into all truth without that as the backdrop for knowing what truth is. And so here we are in the same kind of a time as this. So we skip forward to the gospel, and we see Jesus as, you know, after he's driven out the demons from the two men over on the other side, he crossed over and came to his own city, and some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this is blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise and walk? Well, your sins are forgiven is easier to say. There's no measurement tool to determine whether that's true or not. If you say, rise and walk, I can tell. (laughs) But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. I've said this before, and I'll say it every single time I ever have to preach this lesson, and that is, I believe that in this particular case... This paralysis had something to do with this man's sins. Jesus didn't say it to be provocative. This man needed forgiveness. Somehow or another, this paralysis was related to sin. And the forgiveness of sins made rise and walk possible. To know that his sins were forgiven and that he was now set free allowed him to overcome the paralysis because Jesus had overcome the primary problem 
in this particular situation. There's no other reason for Jesus to have proclaimed forgiveness of sins. Like I said, he didn't do it just to be provocative, because what has happened here? He saw the people's faith, the people who brought him. He saw their faith. This guy needed more than that. He needed to know that his sins had been forgiven. And certainly we all know what it's like to have consequences of our sins. And sometimes those things can be physical. Sometimes they can be physical because of an accident. They can be all kinds of all kinds of things could have happened to us physically that was caused by sin. And so here I believe that Jesus is actually dealing with the real problem first. He's setting this man free from the most important things. He's bound up in his sins. And then he can proclaim the fullness of that healing. But it would have been blasphemy if Jesus had not been able to do that because only God can forgive sins. And so that was the point that they were making in their hearts that Jesus knew. But it's important to say, okay, here, here comes the law, but then here comes grace. Under the law, this man is convicted, and, and he is found guilty, and he is serving a just sentence for his sins according to the law. But the law isn't the end of all things. Grace is. And so ultimately... Because of the faith of these other men, Jesus extends grace, and therefore healing comes with that grace. But which would be more important to you, the grace of knowing your sins are forgiven or the grace of being healed? To me, it would be the grace of knowing my sins were forgiven. Hearing that directly from the lips of the Creator. In the epistle lesson today, Paul is a little put out, let's say, with the worship practices of the Corinthian church. He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. You're doing things, you're worshiping in the right way, You're in the sense that you keep the traditions. Well, traditions are not the only thing to keep. You can keep the traditions perfectly and God not be present at all. Because you're doing a tradition. You're not worshiping. Seen that, too. I'll bet you have as well. He said, in the following instructions, I don't commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Your worship is an abomination to God. This is not good at all, what you're doing is what he's saying. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. You're not even all on the same page. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I listened to a guy preaching the other day, and he did something that I thought was absolutely remarkable. I, I can't imagine ever doing this, but, but I've seen it done before. Um, he, he made the comment um, at the beginning of the thing, they were going to have a worship service that was going to last a couple of hours in, in the, in the, within the next week, and, and he, he was encouraging them to come. He said, I know some of you were thinking, oh my gosh, I can't imagine anything worse than that. He said, I'm not really speaking to you, I'm speaking to the remnant. I'm speaking to those people who get it, and for whom this stuff is really important and it's real. And it was just, it was shocking to me to hear somebody speak those words to his own congregation. But, but that's exactly what Paul's saying here. He says, yeah, I get it. There's factions among you, but it's because people need to see who's genuine. And you can see it in almost every church you've ever been in. If you pay attention to what the fights are about, people will, will um, make something a religious kind of an argument. But you, can, but you know what's behind it frequently, right? I mean, what are you arguing about? Are you arguing about what the guy wears, what colors we got hanging on the wall, whether those candles are the right color? We argue about all those kinds of things, right? And so you know then you're keeping tradition. That's what's mostly important to you. If, if your worship is ruined because those candles aren't pure white, 
if your worship is ruined because, well, I think this season we ought to be using blue, not purple, because that's the older tradition. If you think it's wrong that somebody's wearing a certain garment or not wearing a certain garment, then those aren't those aren't the, the kind of arguments that speak to those who are genuine. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat for an eating. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. What are you doing? One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I mean, you can just see his, Paul is, is shocked at what's going on there. It, it, what is this? Wait a minute. This isn't just some a sloppy, agape meal that's to be had there. What have you done? You've turned this into a meal. No, 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 no. <laughs> let's come back to square one and let's talk about communion. Let's talk about what that's about and, and, and what it means to have fellowship, that koinonia that I talked about yesterday. L- let's have koinonia together, which is fellowship and participation. It's equality. It's loving your neighbor, not letting that guy go hungry while you sit there and satiate yourself. It's It, it must have been a, a truly amazing thing <laughs> in Corinth at this time. I mean, they did not seem to get things at all. That They seemed to miss the boat entirely. They seemed to have overthrown Jesus for their favorite preachers. Whether Jesus was in it or not, hey, I really like the way that guy talks. But here we we see something even worse. Paul said, y'all are not even on the same page in any shape, form, or fashion. You keep the tradition, but you don't understand the spirit of worship at all. You don't understand the spirit of Christianity at all. You don't understand the meaning of koinonia as the fellowship of those who have been forgiven of sins, who have been raised from the dead, who owe their lives to Jesus, and who are all equal to one another. It's an amazing thing to watch churches forget who they are. 